we're starting, it's not really a series, this is a series we started a while ago, and uh, what we're talking about is something called, I like to call table theology. Theology, as you guys saw in the video, is a study of, like, um, the study of God. You see, like, an ology is the study of something. So, you see, when you understand, you know, when you study different sections of creation, those are named different things. So, when we study God, it's theology. So, in this series, what do we want to do and what we're doing, and this is a series that's going to manifest itself over the course of years, because it's going to be anytime we don't have a, we have a one-off Sunday where, you know, maybe it doesn't mesh up perfectly with the series we're in, we're going to do a table theology. And we did one last year, earlier this year already, and it was about the Bible. So if you have any questions about what we believe as a church about the Bible, what I believe is about the Bible and stuff, you can go watch that video. And it's saved on a playlist on YouTube. So as we go through these, we're going to start make sure we put them on YouTube so you guys can go back. The goal of this, okay, I'm going to be very frank, I'm going to tell you right up front. The goal of this is so you have a resource because your kids are going to ask questions. Your friends are going to ask questions. And they're going to ask questions that you may not have the answer to. And the pastor is not always going to be there to be able to answer those questions. In fact, God has equipped every one of us to answer those questions and given us the authority to answer those questions. But sometimes it's a gap in knowledge. And it's not because we're not smart enough. It's because nobody taught us. And we just don't understand. So what we're doing is putting together a resource on YouTube. If you go to the playlist, Table Theology, you'll see these videos start to populate. So if you see this video today and you're like, hey, I'm gonna, I would like to reference that or cover that with my teenager when they begin asking about faith, you can go to that playlist, you can rewatch it, and you can say, okay, that's the best way to explain it. That's the best way to understand it. So that's the whole reason that we're doing this series the way that we are. Now, as we get started... I just wonder, how many of you have ever seen a paramedic go to work on scene? Has anybody ever seen that? A first responder go to work, a paramedic go to work on scene, right? Some of you are related to, married to, spend time with some of these people. And if you've ever seen it happen in real life, they don't care whose fault it is, do they? I mean, they just kind of show up, especially a paramedic. They just show up and get to work. If they show up to the scene of a car accident, they don't show up and before they start rendering aid say, hold on, whose fault was this? Who ran the red light? No, that's, that's not even, they're not even interested in that. When, the, when they show up and the ambulance comes in and the doors pop open and those guys and gals hop out, they are concerned with caring for and healing and helping the individuals who are hurt. The same thing is true when you see first responders when a house is on fire. They don't run, they don't stop and gather around and say, hold on, everybody, before we go save any lives, does anybody know what started this? Was it a, was it a match? Was it a cigarette? Like, what started this? Sure, they're going to do a risk assessment, but that's been done from the minute they get there. They're not going to stop and say, okay, who do we blame? Whose fault is this? They're not going to do that. They're going to go right in and help the people. And then once they get the people out of the burning building, the paramedics are not going to go, hold on a second, I need to find out who started that fire before I render aid. That's ridiculous. They wouldn't do that, absolutely not. And if you've seen them on scene, that's what they do. They're not interested in blame. They're not interested in, in who started it or what happened. They're interested in getting in and helping with those people. And today's topic is similar to that. It's a very important topic, and it's honestly something we don't often talk about much in the church. We talk about it, and we give an invitation at the end of service, 
and we tell people, you need Jesus. But we don't often explain or uncover or unpack the implications of that. And since you guys are the super church, because you're here on New Year's, New Year's Day, so I know you guys are ready for this. The, the, you know, the other group, they're at home, they're not, they're not ready for this yet, but you guys are. Today we're going to talk about a topic that you're familiar with, but maybe you don't recognize that you've paid a lot of attention to and into. And that topic is salvation. Because when I first became a believer, I had tons of questions related to salvation. But I wasn't allowed to ask them because it was considered like a dogma. But I had questions. I had questions like, what is salvation? I hear that word, it's a church word. It's Christianese. I hear it all the time. But what does it mean? Why did we need saving? That was another question. What happened to where we needed Jesus? What, what was that? And saving from what? what? What is the opposite of not accepting salvation or not even having it? And then why did Jesus need to be the one to provide the salvation? And I had all these questions, and I had had them ever since I became a Christian, but never felt comfortable enough to really ask them, and nobody really explained it to me because it was considered what we call a dogma. So I'm going to make life a little easy on you guys because if you're, if you're a nerd, you're going to like this next part, okay? If you're not a nerd, you're going to be like, here we go. The whole message is not this, okay? But I'm just going to talk to the nerds for a second because I'm a nerd and I'm talking to you, all right? There's, there's three things we think about when it comes to theology. We have doctrine, or we have dogma, we have doctrine, and then we have opinion, Okay? Dogma is fundamental, key parts of our belief that Christ was the Son of God, died on the cross, rose on the third day, conquered death. Yo, I'm getting jazzed up thinking about this. Conquered death and provided salvation in a bridge for us to be able to reach the Father. That is a dogma, fundamental to what we believe. Let me, let me say it this way. It's written in blood. It's written in the blood of Christ. A dogma is written in blood, and it means that it cannot and should not change. Now, a doctrine, however, a doctrine is more of a tradition. It's more of a church tradition. It may be a particular viewpoint on spiritual gifts. It may be a particular viewpoint on uh, alcohol. It may be a particular viewpoint on other types of sin, other levels of sin, things of that nature, fall into, think of anything church discipline and tradition, kind of falls into that, se that section of doctrine. Now, I like to think of these as written in ink, meaning they can change, but it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Case in point was the fact that for a long time in our church, women couldn't, they didn't think women had the ability to preach for a bit. But then now, all of a sudden, in the American church, it's a lot more it's a lot more prominent to see a female being able to speak and preach the gospel and be able to teach people those things. So that's, a, that's an example of something that was a doctrine that began to change, took a long time, lots of effort and, and adjustment, but it did eventually change. It's written in ink, church doctrine. Then we have opinion, okay? Opinion is personally based. That's what your convictions, your viewpoint of things are. And these are written in pencil. They erase, and they rewrite, and they constantly change. And these are important because your opinions and your viewpoints on things should always be evaluated. 
They should always be erased and rewritten and thought through and think about things and unpack things. It's good for your faith to do that. These are things that are not necessarily fundamental to your faith, okay? These are things that can freely change in and out, right? Like last night, I had the opinion that the Buckeyes were the best team in the entire nation. This morning, that opinion has changed. It changed last night at 12.05. And you've heard me say this before, one of the greatest mistakes of the American church, I'm bitter if you can't tell, the one of the biggest problems with the American church, and you've heard me say this before, is we get in this place where we're not allowed to ask questions about things. Because if you ask questions to understand something, all of a sudden you're not trying to understand it, you're trying to challenge it. And the answer is, no, 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 I can have questions about salvation without challenging the doctrine or the dogma of salvation. Somebody say amen. I can understand it and desire to understand it deeper instead of just following it blindly. Believe it or not, that's not expected in the Bible. And so people say, well, you just got to take it on faith, brother. Take it on faith, sister. Why did Paul write so much if you just had to take it on faith? Why did he unpack so much theologically in Romans and then again in First and Second Corinthians if, there, if you just had to take it on faith? No, he's unpacking and explaining things. And today we're not questioning what Jesus did. We understand what Jesus did. We're not questioning that at all. So that's not even on the table to talk about. If you want to talk about it, I'll talk about it. I just ain't doing it from here. We'll grab coffee and we'll talk about it, and you can tell me why you think it's true or not true. But that's not the conversation. The conversation today and what we're unpacking is what he did and why he did it. So what actually happened when Christ was on the cross, and what does it mean for us, and why did he do it, and how does it affect us. And here's the kicker. Again, we weren't the only ones to have these questions. Because if we were the first ones to have these questions, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have wrote the majority of Romans. When you read through the book of Romans, he's unpacking theology throughout the entire thing. And when you read First and Second Corinthians, he's doing the same thing. And when you read Colossians, he's doing the same thing. Because all these churches didn't understand. And they needed help. And so Paul's writing to them to help them understand. They understood the salvation that was offered through Christ. They knew that they had eternal life through Jesus. They understood that. They knew the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. They understood that. That was easy. But what they didn't fully understand was the big picture. To give you an analogy, they, they understood the battlefield from their foxhole. They didn't see the big picture. They didn't see the whole thing. So the Apostle Paul comes in in Romans, and particularly in Romans, he does the the biggest job and the best job of it, of explaining what what the big picture actually is from start to finish. Because you've heard me say this before. The Bible's a storybook. It's a start-to-finish kind of book. And thank goodness we aren't the only ones, because Paul really unpacks it. So we're going to look at that today in the book of of Romans. So for those of you that sit around and may say, Brandon doesn't go deep enough, put your scuba gear on, y'all. We going in, all right? So let me break down the letter of Romans for you. The letter of Romans is typically broken down in this fashion. You have, you have chapters one through three, which is Paul explaining why we needed God, what was wrong with the human condition. Then after that, you have sections three through eight, which is how he provided the solution for why we needed God. Then you have chapters 9 through 11, which is a shorter chapter, but it's God's faithfulness through Israel. That's God bringing the promise that he made to Abraham all the way through Israel to Jesus arriving on the scene. 
to complete the promise made to Israel. And then you have chapters 12 through 16, which is how we should respond. Now, this is what's so interesting. Before we go to the next slide, look, why we need a God, how he provided, right? So we got five chapters on how he provided. It's important to understand the ways he did it and what he did and what Christ did. We only get three chapters on why we needed God. We get two chapters on the history of God's faithfulness through it. But then we got four on how our response because believing is not enough. Believing is the beginning. That's the cookies on the low shelf. You're barely getting over the bar. But how you respond is fundamental to your faith. But those of you that don't like those sermons, that's not today. We're, under, we're diving in theologically. We're understanding it. So the first thing, why Jesus? Why did Jesus, what did we need? Why did we need salvation? Paul unpacks that in Romans 6. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, in order to understand what it means, we have to define that icky S word up there, right in the middle after wages of and in between is death. We don't like that word. We really, if we had our choice, we would take sin out and put the word mistake in there, wouldn't we? Or accident. Or sometimes I didn't mean to. I hear this all the time. Sometimes people say a really, really mean thing or a really hateful thing, and they say, I didn't mean to. And that's just not true. You meant to say it in that moment. And when people say, no, 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 I didn't. I'm not that kind of person. No, you're not that kind of person. But in that moment, you didn't mistake something. You sinned. Are we still good? I know we're the mature Christians in this room, so we can use the S word. But you still sinned. And according to Paul, and according to what we understand about, and according to the Bible and what we understand about God, the wages of sin, the earnings of sin, is death. Meaning sin brings death into the world and into your life. So sin, to understand it, is a violation of God's known law. That's what sin is. It's a violation of God's known law. Now, um, does anybody happen to just possibly maybe remember what Jesus said all the law and prophets hang on? Does anybody remember? He said two things. You may have heard it around here a few times. It was love God and love people. He says when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he says, love your neighbor again as yourself. And then he, he caveats it so we understand all the law and prophets, meaning you will keep every one of God's commands if you do these two things. So let me make an easier definition, maybe one that's a little more handles of what sin is. A sin is anything that gets in the way of your relationship with God and anything that hurts those around you or if it hurts you. So, uh, so let me put it this way. If it's something that gets in the way of your relationship with God, it's a sin. And if it's something that hurts you or hurts those around you, it's a sin. It is going to hurt you. Now that we understand what sin is, Let's read that verse again. Now that we understand what sin is, for the wages of sin, anything that separates me from my heavenly Father and anything that hurts me or those around me, right, is death. Being separated from the Father is the equivalent to death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But wait a second. Why Jesus? Okay, so we understand sin, right? How'd that get here? 
And why Jesus? Paul continues, he tells us in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, again, the wages of sin is death. And in this way, death came to all people, because all have sinned. Everybody. Everybody has sinned. In fact, I'm going to make it fun. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you sinner, go ahead. We're in church. You said, Some of you guys really enjoyed that. Some of you have been like, man, I've been waiting for a year for him to say that. I've been, wait- I've been trying to tell him he's one of those. Because all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We know that verse. We've heard that before. And see, death is an unnatural occurrence in God's creation. Because when Adam sinned and chose rebellion instead of choosing obedience, he chose disobedience instead of obedience. Creation was broken. And when creation was broken, sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, death and pestilence and disease and everything else carried on to it. And people say, well, Brandon, how do you know that? Because in the garden, there was no mention of any type of death at all. There was no mention of any of that. In fact, the command was for us to care for the garden. That's what we were supposed to do, and care for creation. That was our expectation. Us living as the image of God was for us to care for God's creation. But when sin entered the world, so did death, and so did all the other things that we experience. Because death was not meant to be the experience we had. The garden was the original live in eternity with God. But it changed. And it would seem his original design was for us to be stewards of God's creation, glorifying him and in community with him. Because God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And Adam's disobedience, consequently, breaking God's command, allowed sin to enter into the world. And so we have the wages of sin is death. Now Paul's not done. He wants us to fully understand this point. He says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, to which we go, that's not fair, Brandon. Why did that happen? Why did I inherit Adam's sin? You didn't so much inherit Adam's sin as Adam's sin broke the creation. The immediate disobedience to God broke the creation. So you didn't necessarily, if you don't like the word inherit, sometimes inherit's really easy to understand. If you don't like that word inherit, you can think of it as it entered into the creation in that manner. Because some people like don't like the word that they inherited sin. But he says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, because everybody had sinned, and the wages of sin was death, and everybody was going to die, and that's the end of the story. So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. For just as through the disobedience of one man, pay attention, that many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man that many were made righteousness. Paul's point is this. Sin entered the world through Adam. However, Jesus in his obedience to the Father justified the entire world. Sin, Adam disobeyed the Lord Sin entered, Jesus obeyed his father, sin exited. 
That doesn't mean that you aren't going to run into issues, and it doesn't mean that you're not going to sin. It means you have the, you're free from the results of it. And you can choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to not sin and to not do those things. And I like the word justified because it means to be made right with God. Think the balancing of scales or the justifying of scales. Think of it this way. Pastor Mike broke it, broke it down this way one time. He said, justified is really just as if I'd never sinned. It's almost like restoring us to creation. That one's free. You can take that if you like that. You can restore, it's, it's restoring us to the original creation, to the original paradise. Because that's what happens when we accept Jesus. He builds the bridge and it's like we were just as if we'd never sinned. And the, the constant forgiveness and grace of God allows us to continue. Now, does that mean, and Paul makes the point in chapter 6, does that mean we just say, oh, the grace of God, I can behave however I want. Paul would yell at you and say, absolutely not. That is not the result. That's not the response to the grace that has been given. The response should be different. Now, some of you may sit here and think, okay, well, what is the point? What's the point in sending Jesus, what's the point in all of this? John captures it perfect in his gospel. You've heard it. You've heard it all the time. Some of you may have it tattooed on you. Some of you may have shirts made of it. You've got it on coffee mugs. But we skip past it and it's just become another saying. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not inherit or receive the result of sin. That's what he's saying. That's why Paul does such a big job explaining it and does, exp, uh, expands it over the course of so many chapters. John sums it up for us. That those who believe in Jesus do not reap the repercussions of sin. But instead, they have eternal life. Jesus came so that we may have eternal life with the Father. Creation broken, paradise restored. That's the purpose. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Again, Jesus came into the world like a paramedic. He wasn't here to, show, to, to determine blame. He didn't show up and say, all right, before I start saving people and before we start giving salvation messages and before we start giving invitations and before I allow people to come to the Father, I need to figure out whose fault it is. Okay, who did this? I'm going to condemn that person. We need to figure it out. I'm going to, we need to figure it out, right? And it's not a, okay, well, I've sinned, so now I need to go to Jesus. And he's going to sit there and go, all right, well, what caused you to sin? Who caused you to sin? Right? What are the circumstances of it? What is this? What is that? No, 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 no. Let me, let me read it again in case we missed it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world to save the world. Not to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Justifying was his goal. Saving was 
his goal. That was the entire purpose. So salvation, in a nutshell, in the beginning, man sinned, chose disobedience. And in choosing disobedience, sin entered the world. You can word it however you like. Inherited or broken and entered the world. But sin arrived. And in that brokenness, death and everything else that we hate came along with it and infected the creation. But God didn't leave it that way. He set up the nation Israel who he would bring the Savior through. And in setting up that nation, he through the genealogy, brought Jesus to the scene. And Jesus shows up like a paramedic to save, not condemn. And he's not interested in whose fault it was. Jesus shows up and says, I'm here to save. And so he did. And then, in the end, it's paradise restored. That's the purpose of salvation. Sin entered the world, and salvation provides a means to avoid the consequences of sin. So then the next question that we have to ask in this space is, are we justified? Are you justified? Are you saved from the consequences of your actions, of the consequences of creation, of the consequences of Adam? Or are you on the outskirts looking in? And the way I describe it is there's three things if we want to decide that. We admit that we need Jesus. We believe that he was who he said he was and that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, conquering death in the grave. And then we commit ourselves to following him. And that was the offer that he gave his disciples. And here's something I know. Here's what I know. That following Jesus is not just an empty act, but it has repercussion and ripple effects through your entire life. I'm a better husband because I follow Jesus. I'm I'm a better person because I follow Jesus. Not because I believe in Jesus. That doesn't make you a better person. Somebody say amen. That's too low of a bar. That's why the whole thing is admit you need him, believe in him, and then commit yourself to follow him. People say, well, why do you add that last part? Because he said it in the Great Commission. Teaching them to follow all of my commands. It wasn't just about believe. It was about following. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better leader because of what Jesus has done in my life. And as we start 2023, we've got so many different things on our mind, right? So many different things going on. You've probably already got stresses this year that you didn't have yesterday that all of a sudden you have today because you're like, oh, it's a brand new year. Now I got to worry about this. Now I got to worry about this. Now I got to take care of that. Here's what I know, that if you want to be a better husband or a better wife, If you want to be a better mother or a better father, if you want to be a better boss, co-worker, or friend, following Jesus, not just believing in him, okay? 
like I said, this is the saved crew. You guys are here on, on New, Year's, New Year's Day. So I know you guys are probably saved. But following him, that's what changes your life. Salvation changes your eternity. Following him changes your physical and your life. That's what makes the difference in your life. So the salvation has been provided. The stage has been set. But the question is, is do you follow? Believing is there. That's the easy part. But do you follow Jesus? And, the spirit, and his spirit and the instructions he gives will make you better in life. It's not to take away, it's not like his set of rules or something like that to take away all your fun. That's not why that happened. Because sin wasn't in the plan, and so his plan is to get us far away from that and closer to our heavenly Father. He provided a way forward that we did not deserve. But again, you have to decide that you want to follow. Receiving the salvation is enough to change your eternity but it will not change your right now. What changes your right now and what you do in this next year is how close are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow from a very far distance and watch and look on from a long ways away, or are you going to follow him? And following him doesn't mean that you just show up to church. It doesn't mean that you give in the offering. It doesn't mean that you volunteer. It doesn't mean that you join small groups. Sure, all those things are ways that we provide as an organization and as a group of people to hang out and spend time together and disciple one another. That's all true. Following Jesus is following his commands all the time. So for your New Year's resolution, because everybody loves doing those, right? Follow a little closer this year. A little closer. Maybe last time you were 10 feet from him, this time be nine. Maybe last year you were a little bit further away and you weren't even sure if you believed in this thing. This year, maybe believe a little bit more. Maybe you've been a believer your whole life and you've just kind of fallen away from the practices, but you really just enjoy the church stuff. Follow a little closer. Get to know him a little more. And a great way to do that is to engage in the 21 days of prayer and fasting we're starting next week. Start your year off following just a little closer. Just a little closer. I don't ask for big things. You know, I know big changes are really hard, so don't make a big change. Just follow a little closer. Follow a little closer this year than you did last year. And see if your life doesn't change. And see if your God doesn't honor that action. So, as we close, I'd love to pray for you guys. Father, thank you for the salvation and for the justification that you provide through Lord Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for the year 2022. Thank you for the way that you have been so faithful to us, both as a church, as a body of believers, and as individuals. Because, Lord, I'm certain if I gave the microphone around, we'd be here all day with testimonies on how you provided. So, God, we're grateful for you today. We're thankful for the salvation that Christ provided to us. Now, Lord, I pray as we 
continue into 2023, Lord, that we would follow you a little closer than we did last year. This life is a process, and we should all be about progress. So, Lord, help us follow you a little closer. Allow your Spirit to speak just a little bit louder to us this next year. Press on our hearts just a little bit more and draw us just a little bit closer to you as you understand everybody's heart and you understand the speed at which they can move. So help us move, Lord, one step at a time, closer to you. And we're convinced that it changed the world once before and it'll change our lives and change the world again. So Father, we love you. We give you all the praise. And the church said, amen.